Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend, retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Executive Director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. He's also a fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He, along with retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Dr. Rooster Schmidl, wrote the 23-page report a report on the fighting culture of the United States Navy surface fleet that's been uh, making headlines over the past couple of days. The report was commissioned by four Republican lawmakers, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and Representatives Jim Banks of Indiana, Dan Crenshaw of Texas, both Navy uh, veterans, one a Navy veteran and the other one a Navy reservist. Tom Cotton served in the United States Army and Mike Gallagher, uh, a former Marine who serves uh, augustly in Wisconsin and has joined us on this program many times. Uh, it was the report was released yesterday before the start of Carlos del Toro's confirmation hearing today. Mark, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be here, Vago. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And I should point out, uh, please check out every Friday our Cavus Ships podcast with Christopher P. Cavus, who is uh, one of our contributing editors and our very own producer, Chris Cervello, who discussed naval issues. And I suspect this report, uh, Mark, will be one of those. UN Rooster interviewed 77 active duty and retired surface warfare officers and, and enlisted. Uh, you know, there are some who say, hey, that's too small a sample. Others m- maintain that it's sufficient to be able to get a, a taste or a flavor of the issues. The headline obviously was that 94% concluded that the culture, uh, Navy culture, was defined by focusing on administrative BS rather than warfighting, uh, characterized by micromanagement, by risk aversion. Uh, a lot of it because of uh, worries about negative uh, headlines uh, that have undermined uh, not only the fighting prowess of the force, but also contributed directly to the recent spate of accidents we've seen, whether it was McCain and Fitzgerald con- uh, collision, the, the capture of the two small craft by uh, the IRGC, uh, the devastating pierside fire that uh, last year gutted Bonhomme Richard that'll have to be scrapped. Um, the key finding appears to be that there is not enough of a deck placed focus on war fighting and too little investment in the surface force and its uh, people and its materiel. Many would tell you that we've known all of this for a very long time. You and I have been having this conversation for years uh, now. Uh, and many people in wardrooms and on waterfronts, uh, as, as well as in the bar and in the armchair community have been discussing the same thing. You were a destroyer captain, a cruiser captain, a carrier strike group commander. Uh, you were uh, J-5 uh, at Pacific, uh, U.S. Pacific Command. What did you learn from this exercise that we didn't know before? Thanks, Vago, and thanks for the summary. Uh, first thing I'd say is, you know, Rooster and I didn't do the interviews. They, in fact, were done by kind of peers to the people in the interview process so that they could get more honest answers. And these were about one-hour interviews. So these are extended, long um, you know, uh, what, what, you know, oral history type interview. So I, I think that gave us a lot of information. Uh, you're right that the, the idea that there's an underinvestment in maintenance and training in the surface warfare officer community, which really was uh, the largest group of finding, the most consensually held view among, among these different people. And it was based on their seniority, you know, how they referred to it, you know, because ship captains, you know, had a much more detailed view of the maintenance challenge than say, and more junior officers would have a much more detailed view of the junior officer training program. 
But you know, those two factors were really the, the driving issues. But what surprised me, and I think Rooster as well, was that they then, the majority of, of interviewees concluded with, this is um, blunting or limiting or eliminating our focus on war fighting. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't mean that um, a warfighter like Lung Aquilino isn't exactly who he says he is. You know, I've known Lung a long time. He's a warfighter. That doesn't mean that there aren't warfighters in the Navy. What it means is, is that this kind of persistent underinvestment uh, in maintenance and training is having an impact on at least how the personnel perceive um, the focus of the Navy. Now, layering on top of this, a lot of administrative requirements, and you're exactly right. At, at every few years, the Navy says, Give us a list of administrative requirements we can re remove, and you, in the end, don't see a law, a lot of removal. I mean, it turns out that either through legislative provision, you know, by law, by a policy mandate from a higher authority like the Secretary of Defense, or sometimes by policy mandates from within the Navy, we have a lot of administrative burdens. Um, I think what a bunch of the personnel said was, I, I get it. I need to do this training. I, I think we have a line in there that all these different trainings are, in fact, appropriate. You know, I don't think anyone was questioning that. I think the issue was when it was happening. And for the surface warfare community, I, I think uh, there's a couple comments that, we, that were in there about, you know, is the timing of it. We continue to do this, have this, you know, kind of burdensome administrative requirement in the middle of deployment. Um, it would make one wonder, is an army battalion in Iraq doing that as well? Or do they tend to, once they get forward, focus on the, focus on the first thing? You know the war fight or the operational activity they're involved in, and and I think that's probably a fair criticism. So again, uh, you're absolutely right that the operational issues, the the uh, the of training issues, the maintenance issues, the administrative issues. I don't think this revealed anything new. I think it what was new was hearing such a preponderance of the of the respondents say, "Hey, this affects my belief." And the surface navies, and I should emphasize here, this was really the surface navies right. focus on war fighting. If I could add one other thing, I 100% believe there's two manpower problems. One is there's too many junior officers in the wardrooms, and two is we have kind of we've cut down the size of the enlisted uh, um, complement on on the surface ships. Uh, but not enough people said, that, you know, we did not hear that. Repeatedly from the seventy, you know, from the the interview, the people we interviewed. So we couldn't. Rooster and I couldn't add that in, even though I think we both believed it, because it was something anecdotal to us and not something that came out of the oral histories. Uh, let me uh, let me ask you for your key takeaways. Right, you have eight uh, recommendations. Walk us through the eight recommendations. So yeah, and and this is. I also want to make clear that um, this is not comprehensive. I, neither is. I mean, the Bilal report that came out in 2010, well, I know we'll probably talk about that, you know, had a lot of recommendations. I don't think Admiral Bilal would have said this is a comprehensive issue of every list of every service Navy issue. And, the, and GAO, which does a report, I think there's a 2021 or 2019 or 2017, you can go back and back and back on surface readiness, has lots of recommendations. And I hope they wouldn't hold them to be comprehensive. So I think right up front, we say we were not positioned. We had done a review of oral history. So we weren't position to offer a comprehensive solution, but we did want to respond to what the, what the preponderance of these people said, which was first, prioritize war fighting. And, um, you know, doing this with Rooster Schmidt was fantastic because this is a Marine Corps fight, you know, uh, aviator 
who had spent a lot of time in simulators and as a senior officer had had to kind of do that balancing act of simulator versus life, life flying, you know, kind of decision making. And he and he made it clear that there is a value to developing and hosting kind of high end uh, multi-mission warfighting training tools and that we need to have those on surface ships. Now, I would counter in, in one area and say we do that in Aegis. And I started to think, how does the Navy do that in Aegis? And the answer is the Navy doesn't pay for Aegis on its own. The Missile Defense Agency pours a ton of money into our Aegis programs. And when we get that extra influx of money, we do the right thing. And anyone who's been through Dahlgren knows that we, in one warfare missionary or two, if you count ballistic missiles separate from uh, air breathing defense, missile defense, um, we do a very good job training our crews and having high-end warfighting training tools. Um, so first of all is get more high-end warfighting training tools for the surface community, commensurate with what you do with, with the other communities. And then second, you know, really get the administrative training out, get it during the the maintenance cycle and early in the basic phase of the training cycle, and then get it out. Make your training after you hit the intermediate phase of the training cycle and all the way through deployment, make your training be about the war fight. Um, you know, I grew up in the 1980s Navy where we had a complete fixation on the Soviet Navy uh, down to understanding what their waterline uh, visual was, every weapon on board, every weapon on my ship that could counter the weapon on their ships, every weapon on their aircraft, every weapon on, on my ship that could counter their aircraft's weapons. I mean, there was a level of detail and fixation that, that we just haven't been able to get to because we got so many other things to do. You know, our second recommendation had to do with, with risk-taking and encouraging it. Um, and, and probably again, Rooster was great on this. You know, he talked a lot about the, some of the war fighting Wargaming capabilities the Marines had been using you know, over the last 15 years to prepare their officers for combat. And we probably could, could, could get value from that. It's okay to lose. In fact, it's appropriate in the training cycle to lose so that in the operational cycle you win. And, and so kind of encouraging risk-taking, making the, the wargaming more challenging. Um, and then look, the surface warfare officer training, our third recommendation is on the surface warfare officer training path. This is frustrating um, and, and also a glimmer of hope, which is we studied the, the complaint. There were pretty large complaints because I, I don't think we interviewed any within the last year and a half ensigns. So we had a lot of you know, reporting on previous training tracks. I will tell you, as part of this, I went and studied the current training tracks for uh, basic division officer course and advanced division officer course. So I'll first start by saying, historically, the Navy has done two things wrong in junior and surface warfare officer, surface warfare officer training. I, we've looked for efficiencies in it, and that's caused us to shorten it, and that's caused us to not spend a lot of money on it. And, and the, I'm not saying you should spend as much on a surface warfare officer's training to get to the fleet as you should on an F-18 pilot's training, but the right now the you know it's about a uh, you know a two or three percent to a hundred percent kind of analogy. It's, we spend, you know, between three and four million to get a, a fighter pilot into an active squadron. And then uh, and, and we don't spend, you know, more than a handful of a percent of that on the surface war officers. And more importantly, we spend 21 to 24 months to get that pilot there. We spend 15 to 18 months to get a submariner to her or his first ship. And but on the surface warfare officer, we have routinely thought about spending days or weeks or just 
you know, one or two months. Well, it, it's and we too, think it's that's too, okay. It, it's it's to your point, right? Four million dollars for the aviator, and Mark Montgomery gets a, a set of twenty-four CDs, right? I mean, I know that we've changed that since, but yeah. in your era, that's what it boiled down to. Well, that, when I was a commanding was officer, the, when I was a commanding officer, my some of my people came, and Carlos del Toro's uh, came with twenty-four CDs. And you know, you, you remind me of something else. The other problem is the instability in the training pipeline. It changed about every two years. Um, you know, from when you, when I went through, you know, in the mid eighties, when it was a five month course, you know, which was the pinnacle kind of training thing. Um, it, it, it went through down to two or three months, down to a month out of Newport into San Diego, onto the ship CDs back to Newport. You know, it's been inconsistent and underinvested, and those things, two things together have to stop. So now here's the silver lining. The current program looks to me to first be appropriate in length. Second, appear to emphasize war fighting and ship handling in the right way. So I think the surface boss has this right. Now here comes the kicker. Is he gonna get the money to have the exact, all the high-end simulators he needs and all the operators of those simulators? Cause that's the other key to Aegis training is the quality of the trainers at Dahlgren are just phenomenal. And then um, is he gonna get, gonna be able to maintain the, have the discipline you know, to maintain that training track for several years. I mean, the only way to know, you know, to, to get the rheostat just right on it is to generally keep it the same and make only very, very minor corrections. So uh, sorry to interrupt there, but I mean, I'm excited. This gets me passionate. I think the Navy may get on the right track, but I will tell you, talking to these 77 uh, sailors, this was a major, major concern and an area of disappointment over the last 20 years. Uh, but but uh, let me take you, you know, right, you, you mentioned the, the Belial uh, report, right? I mean, the reality is the, uh, the sort of 85% of the Navy's maintenance dollars go to the nuclear Navy and it's 80 or so ships, as opposed to the several hundred other surface uh, warships. Uh, and so, and we put up with a degree of deficiency with these ships uh, getting underway, right? Then there's the administrative concern. John Greenert, when he was CNO, directed John Richardson and Bill Moran uh, to study the issue. What are, what are the administrative burdens that we don't need uh, because the administration uh, administrative burdens in turn are what contribute to the gun decking, this sort of compliant mentality of I'm not going to actually conduct the training evolution. I'm just going to sign it off because yeah, junior officers have told me this. You, you just, you know, it's it's for completion. You, you sign the paperwork, you just send it to squadron or group, and that's the end of it, which is complete BS, right? I mean, there are some things you're going to have to do. And JOs expressed uh, ill ease with this culture of putting your name against something that might not otherwise be true, right? I mean, so the culture is getting corrosive uh, at, 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 at that point. Um, and yet when Richardson and Moran studied this, they found that nobody wanted to part with any of their administrative requirements, which is one of the things that, that you mentioned at the time you were deep in the fleet. What does Carlos del Toro, your friend, need to do and need to do differently and do it with urgency? Because I wanna get what you think he's gotta do and on the other hand, what does Congress have to do? Because there is a concern, especially with this report, Mark. It says at the very top that this is a bipartisan Congress serving its investigative role, but the composition of the panel suggests or, or people are carrying away a political message from it, thereby losing part of it. Talk to us a little bit about what Carlos has to do when he gets in the saddle. Thanks. So I'll start by picking up on, on the maintenance issue and then rolling to Car Carlos, because I think that's the one of the most important areas where the Secretary of the Navy can have a significant role. So um, the the um, 
the maintenance issue is really something that was it's outside the hands of of uniform navy personnel um the the thing that kills maintenance the first thing is you're right the the, the initial spread of money is insufficient but really complicating that is that a, a a large number and it's you can't it's very hard to get your exact number up but my our estimate was around 20 ships a year are 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 um are uh, uh, extended in their deployment. And this can be anywhere from one to two to even six months, but usually in the one to two month timeframe. And you know, there's a risk making decision where the chairman of the joint, the J3 of the joint staff and the chairman of the joint staff go to the sec def and explain, here's the risk in this, you know, this ship has an availability coming up, uh, you know, maybe it'll cost an extra five or $7 million, but we get this ship for two more months and central command or European command or Pacific command meets this really, really important strategic goal. Secretary of Defense goes, well, geez, that makes sense, general. And, you know, they approve it. Here's the actual problem. The ship extends, we'll say two months. First of all, it comes back, its availability has now slipped eight weeks. Well, the shipyard they're going into had four or six other ships in a balance, right? And that balance is now lost uh, because this other ship, and they're uh, you know, a set workforce. They don't have a lot of surge. So they now have to squeeze the ship in in other areas. It becomes more expensive. It becomes, it stresses um, certain ratings in the shipyard and it comes harder. That's the first problem. The second problem is they're on deployment two months longer, more things break. They come in with a longer work list. No one added money to the availability cost. As you, and as you said, we're already starting off with a, with a slim budget with surface warfare. And so now they have to de-scope necessary modernization or other jobs. And then comes the third impact. They pop out of the maintenance availability eight, 10, 12 weeks late now uh, from when they would have originally. And they're now per, they're now dropping into a training cycle that they're rippling a new effect in on the afloat training group, you know, trying to add in another ship at the wrong time. So you have this knock on, knock on, knock on effect. So at the very end of the basic training phase, you now have a ship less modernized than it should have been, less repaired than it should have been, um, uh, you know, not trained as effectively as it could have been, and with a crew that might be slightly disgruntled over this whole experience, right? That is a problem. And, and now, and of course, if you were to go to the Secretary of Defense and say, here's the decisions you made over the whole year, sir, these 15 or 20 extensions, and here was the impact, this many hundreds of millions of dollars in, in maintenance, deferment, descoping, or, ex, or ex, expense, expending, although I don't think they get the extra money. Uh, these kind of things canceled, this kind of training perturbation, and this kind of crew retention. The SecDef would say, I never made that decision. No one showed me that risk. So now you ask, what can Carlos Del Toro do? I think this falls directly into the Secretary of the Navy's uh, you know, work basket. He can take this and work this issue of making sure there's a full understanding of the, full understanding of the accrued risk of these maintenance extensions and the pro and the, and the and the issue it's having on the force, uh, both in terms of modernization, readiness, training, and morale. And if and if he's able to do that, that's the kind of leadership uh, that will restore a belief, a perception, and a focus on war fighting. Right? If you can get the ships ready, maintained, and trained for combat, then you've set the crews up to have a focus on war fighting. Now the, now the lung act leaders of the world, when they talk war fighting, are talking to a crew ready to absorb the message. But, so but, to me, that's the big deal for the Secretary of the Navy. So, but how is it that, um, Mark, right, Tom, Tom Rudin is, was as fighting 
uh, an admiral and a war fighting mindset as we've had in the surface force. But I would say Rick Hunt is a surface war fighter, Tom Copeman, uh, right? I mean, the, the community is, is populated with folks like this, but let's use Tom as an example, was talking about distributed lethality. We've heard Scott Swift talk about war fighting, John Greener, war fighting first, uh, John Richardson it, with some very powerful stories that he would tell about how to focus a room full, right? I mean, I think you and I were both at that SNA convention where he sort of said, like no monuments, right? It's at the bottom of the, you either win or you sail away. And, and let's, you know, use that to focus our attention. Lung Alcawalino has been talking about the same thing. Pops Paparo is talking about the same thing. I mean, ultimately, where's the disconnect in message from what senior leaders are talking about, which is long range strike and how do we do this, this war fighting with the deck plate sort of receiving the message that war fighting isn't all that important. And it's all about diversity and not about ship handling and ship fighting. So that and that's not the message in this report, I'll be clear. And I agree. I'll stipulate that I agree that those swole bosses were all good warfighters focused on it. But they also all ended up with the same split on maintenance money that you have heard too early. Right. So you can only do so much if you if you're not investing. This was a this is a a service decision on its commitment, its investment and in surface warfare. And I don't mean that not just the shipbuilding investment. But the, the, the balance of modernization money, maintenance money, training, and the discipline to, you know, to hold the Secretary of Defense in check on, on these extensions. And look, it, what happens is, you know, the, the, I think these, you know, these sailors see the failure to deliver on the maintenance and training in a way that's, that's helpful. And, but the administrative administrata continues. So I, I don't think they sit there and go, um, the admirals are intentionally prioritizing administration over maintenance and training. What they say is maintenance and training is failing and administration isn't. We end up being an administratively driven um, service. I, I will give you one other thing though. There was a feeling that on it, that, that in a desire to not have failure, in a desire to continue to move things along and to get ships out on deployment, that that some of our training, you know, particularly basic phase and intermediate phase training, became what they called compliant. You know, one kid called it. I thought it was really smart. Right, compliance. Compliance centric warfare, which is right. if you can fill out the check sheet, we'll pass you. You know what I mean? And of course, that's. You want to be teaching. That's the point where you want to be teaching creativity. You want to be teaching kind of inqu inquisition, you want, uh, inquisitive thought, not inquisition. You want to be teaching, um, you know, kind of a, the questioning attitude, what's going on here. And, and if you're doing compliance centric warfare at that point, that's, that's not helpful. So um, the, I, th there, there isn't, it isn't that the senior officers aren't being heard. It's that the actions of the Navy don't match the words uh, in terms of what really matters. And in the end, resources are the ultimate sign of your strategic intent. And the resources are being applied to the surface warfare, officer surface warfare community in the manner they are to the submarine and aviation communities. And, and maybe that's a good choice. I don't think so, but it's a choice and it is impacting the perceptions of these officers. And I'll just say the GAO report showed the exact same thing. I don't know why people, people, I guess, are scared to respond to GAO. Look, I like GAO. I think that's a good report. I, I have differences with it, but, um, but you didn't see any pushback from the Navy on the GAO report or from personnel. 
They just said, okay, got it. Let me uh, take you to the question of what Congress can do uh, about this, right? I mean, there are going to be folks who are going to look at this and say that these lawmakers are trying to make hay with some of these uh, quotes in it. And I want to get to the political element of it in, in, a, in a moment. But at the end of the day, even your former boss was somebody who was seen as you know, um, you know, there, there's a line between uh, John McCain, uh, obviously, uh, you know, legendary naval officer and American patriot. Uh, but, you know, McCain used to make like to make political hay of some of this stuff. And so that then contributes to overcautiousness, risk aversion. Nobody wants to risk their career. Almost anything will risk your career. Uh, and, and nowadays, um, you know, unfortunately, you've experienced that as well. What what is Congress's legitimate and rightful role in doing this and getting to a better outcome at the end of the day, as opposed to using, you know, right? I mean, you know, the, the one of the commissioners of this of this panel, Jim Banks, got into it with the CNO over, you know, something that was on his reading list and that's a distraction from the central focus on the United States Navy and war fighting, I would submit. So a, a few thoughts on that. First, I would say um, the, re the reading list issue never came up during this. Now, our interviews were over a year ago or about a year ago. But in addition, I'm, I kind of got the feeling that maybe the reading list isn't read too much, but we'll see. I'll, I hope I'm wrong about that. But one never knows. Not, um, not, not everybody is Mark Montgomery. J uh, Jerry Hendricks and, uh, you know, Jim Stavarita sitting in their stateroom reading Thucydides, uh, Mark, right? I mean, the reality is a little bit different, but but continue. So um, my, my thought on the what Congress can do is they really should ask the Secretary of the Navy to come brief accrued risk from the maintenance decisions. Uh, I think it, we make them come brief like Delta's in the shipbuilding plan all the time. Now that's usually so someone can beat them up over you didn't build as many in, you know my you know my state or this state as 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 should as should have occurred and your thirty year shipbuilding plan doesn't look right. They should call them up at the end of the year. They should say at the beginning of the year this was your maintenance plan. This many availabilities executed. This amount of time for this amount of money to achieve this amount of modernization and readiness. Now tell us what you actually got. Tell us why you didn't get enough, and tell me what the accrued risk is to this. Now, the Secretary of the Navy won't be able to go up to the Hill without first briefing the Secretary of Defense. And I would, that's, that brief will be the saving grace. And the Secretary of the Navy has to brief the Secretary of Defense on what he's about to tell the Hill. And the Secretary of Defense's mind will be, I, I'm, I may not hit yes on those extensions quite so quickly anymore. Because it is killing, that is what is killing, I, I think, the, that is the, one of the most painful things to the surface Navy. It's what's made the cruisers be such a hard thing to modernize and, and get in readiness on these extensions. They've made these availabilities. There's been this compounded risk introduced with shortened or descoped availability after shortened or descoped availability. So that brief, if Congress were to do that alone, they would make an impact. Now, look, it would take years for it to impact like an oral history like this. I get that, you know, but it, it would impact it. The, the, the second one is, um, I, I don't think Congress should mandate surface warfare officer training. I think that gets a little too specific, but they should constantly ask the CNO, the secretary and the SWO boss, what are your, when they're up there for any other purpose, what is your commitment to, uh, to training? How's it going? Are you, you know, do we have the right amount of physical infrastructure and training teams there? to make these really dynamic um, developmental uh, uh, processes like we do for the aviators. I mean, 
there's a good reason that, that, you know, there's a reason the aviation training costs so much. We invest in it. There's a reason the nuclear power training costs so much. We invest in it. We value the product. There's a reason the surface warfare officer training has not been invested in, which is we didn't care what the product does when it hit the fleet. We told the captains, do your business. And of course, that was a significant burden on the captains. And now with the excess officers on board is even more so. But again, that excess officer issue did not come up in our interview. So it wasn't part of our final report. But anecdotally, I think you hear a lot of that. Two questions uh, to give you an opportunity to, to respond to some of the criticism. You and uh, Rooster are experienced officers. You got terrific reputations uh, and also ones uh, as uh, a bipartisan or even nonpartisan, right? I mean, even though you're part of the minority staff and you serve John McCain, you do have a reputation for being somebody who, um, you know, shoots it fair and shoots it down down the middle as 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 uh, somebody who's not interested in political points. On the other hand, there are those who observe that three members uh, who commissioned this report are highly partisan. Uh, three of the four voted against certifying the uh, legitimate presidential election. Are you concerned that your findings are going to be hard for the majority to embrace that sometimes somehow may be tainted, uh, you know, even even if they're the right findings? And, and not drive the kind of necessary change that we need to have. Do, are, you, are you concerned at all about that? Well, I wasn't concerned until you mentioned it, but the, uh, what I would say is that, um, that I, I think, you know, so Senator Cotton asked, asked me, myself and Rooster to do this. I think uh, when, we, when he asked us, I mean, our, our, uh, the, the guidance he gave us was, I thought, nonpartisan. You know, I work on a nonpartisan commission or bipartisan commission that takes nonpartisan positions. And he's, it sounded just like that. I'm very comfortable that these are bipartisan. I think some of my maintenance issues, I think Elaine Luria would, would uh, chide me for not being hard enough on the maintenance issues and on the modernization issues. Um, you know, that, that I didn't, uh, you know, that I probably didn't get to hard enough. You know, she's the uh, Democratic Vice Chair of the House Armed Services Committee and a Congresswoman from uh, uh, Virginia and a retired former Navy SWOT commander. Um, so I would say, you know, there's, I think that there would be bipartisan support for our conclusions, um, but I get that that's not who signed up to the report. And maybe that's a reflection on Congress today that you can't, it's very hard to do ad hoc bipartisan groupings. Um, you know, I'm watching one right now with infrastructure in my cyber job, you know, watching 20 uh, senators try to navigate that. And it is turbulent water and there's no guarantee they'll have luck in the House or with the White House. Uh, but it is very, very infrequent that you, in today's Congress, that you see ad hoc nonpartisan or bipartisan efforts take off. I would like to, I would call this more nonpartisan probably calling it bipartisan was if I could go back in time, I would write that. And what I would mean by that was this isn't saying any one administration made a mistake. This is a 20 year, I mean, we go back to about, I mean, if you ask someone like Jerry Hendricks, he'd probably say this goes back to 1960 or 70 or something. I would say, or 1980, I would say this goes back really to about 1992, 93. Yeah. So that's you, a you lot and I are thinking post tail hook. Uh, era where uh, the service, I think, more dramatically changed, although some Sean O'Keefe uh, prominently in it uh, disagree with that. Let me ask you one other uh, last uh, last question, right? I mean, the press came up in this and, and reporters like nothing better than to sit around and uh, discuss anything that has to do with the word reporting and, and blaming reporters for it. But to an extent, the media culture that we're in 
came up in this and that it's driving uh, Navy leaders to become micromanaging, right? I mean, right, all you need is the big guy hammering on the head of the, you know, the four-star hammering on the three-star, the three to two, right? I mean, stuff rolls downhill and eventually uh, it gets to the CO. They know that their command tour is riding on this. They then hammer on their guys and all of a sudden you have micromanagement across the piece and risk aversion across the piece because you don't want to, you don't want to take any risk, right? Uh, it could get you in trouble and just get through your command tour is the advice that people are, are, are oftentimes given. Um, the Navy used to be very, very good at, at manhandling reporters. I've been doing this for 30 years and setting the conditions for the story and the narrative. Is, is this a communications channel? I mean, what is, is this a senior leader challenge? What, it, what is this exactly? Uh, because at the end of the day, what the press is reporting are occasionally things that people did, did wrong. And the Navy has created a culture where it will expose everything in the spirit of transparency and everything else but it, it then contributes to a corrosive effect. So what's the right balance here? And, and I know you know this because you're somebody who believes very much in the role of a free press to illustrate problems, right? You use that all the time uh, in your job now. What's, what, what's, yeah. what's so, the message to take away from this? First, it's, you know, if we, I hope we didn't write it in a way that it's read as the media has done anything wrong. I, we don't think they have. And, um, and I, I did read some criticism says, Hey, it's a, all this about Navy Times. I, I think that's the quotes from the kids, the sailors is Navy Times. That's they use that or uh, maybe one or two of them use military times. But, you know, I actually knew it as a CNN effect. You know what I mean? So that dates me a little bit. Um, <laughs> and uh, but, you know, our the comment here is about not over respond, overreacting to every comment. You know, the press can say something and you're allowed to say nothing or you're allowed to say acknowledge what they said and then say, hey, we're moving on. I don't think, I think the kind of combative, you know, the, the, the combative is the wrong word, but the point counterpoint nature that they take of, of immediately responding, it causes, it, it, it causes a reflexive attitude to eventually say, we have to show some action in response to this. And I, I think that was probably the problem that these kids were discussing in here. A hundred percent. I mean, I was very lucky. Um, you know, I had no social media on active duty, uh, there was no perception that I needed to have it. Um, and uh, I had no internet until on board a ship that was reliable till I was in 07 or 08. You know, so I didn't, we didn't a have- damning this. indictment of challenge, Athena. Yeah, yeah, that is a, yes, thank you. Um, but uh, these, the, the junior ones today really are, you know, um, you know, attuned to the fact that, you know, that they can very quickly get criticism, a crisis generated kind of thing um, right. very quickly. I, and again, this is not the media's problem at all. And I don't think we were that our recommendations about the media changing. And I don't think uh, the write up is I do think that a couple of the quotes from the uh, sailors mentioned, you know, express frustration with the with the media, but that's probably from the more senior ones who felt, you know, some pain from it. But I don't, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problems in how we respond to it. And I think our recommendation is about better public affairs training on that, kind of the deep breath mentality, take a deep breath and move on. You know, um, you know, the, uh, I watch how congressmen deal with this, you know, congressmen get, you know, most of them are elected with 52 to 55%, which means, you know, 45 to, you know, 48% did not vote for them. And many of those 45 to 48% criticize them routinely. 
And they've learned, you know, they have a, they don't take the bait on every single issue and they just don't need to. And I think the Navy needs, could probably benefit from that. But I, again, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very cautious to say there's no criticism of media in here. This is not a criticism of media. It's a, it's a criticism of an over-responsiveness to it. And it is a criticism a little bit. We have to be careful to keep, you know, we used to keep, uh, you know, the wardroom should be, I don't know what we should talk about now in the wardroom, but I do believe in the old adage that we should keep politics out of the wardroom. You know, um, you know, we got that from the British who literally had Navy officers who were serving members of parliament routinely right. in the 18th and 19th century. So they said, leave politics out of the wardroom. And I think we would do well to do the same. I, I, I think, uh, and, and I understand how you mean it in the context in which the time uh, that it was written, but there, but it, what's interesting is how it is uh, interpreted. It's seen as by some keep left politics out, but keep the right politics uh, in um, because I, you know, I mean, I think a fundamental reality, and I think you'd agree with me, Mark, right? I mean, m- most boardrooms do probably lean more right of center than they lean left of center, even if uh, nobody is uh, directly discussing their uh, their their politics. Uh, I think this is a great place to stop. You are welcome on any time. Already looking forward to having you back on. Uh, there are a couple of other issues that we need to discuss and certainly get you back on uh, solarium uh, issues. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Mark. It's always a pleasure having you on and you're welcome back aboard anytime. Thanks again. Hey, thank you, Vago. I look forward to coming back and talking about the express need for a defensive Guam system. It's going to be critical and look forward to talking to you about it. For our audience, Mark is going to be aboard next week to discuss that very issue. Thanks very much again, Mark. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.